All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Father, we love You and we are so blessed to be called sons and daughters of God. Thank You for Your Son. Thank You for Jesus. And thank You that we have been born again. We have been called into this family of believers. Thank You for the work that You're doing here in Napa. Thank You for what You're doing right here in this congregation and cornerstone. So, as we've gathered here today to sing to You and to love each other and to pray for one another and to hear from Your Word, I pray that You... Oh God, are glorified. I pray that You are pleased with what is happening here today. And uh, I ask Your blessing upon this service and upon the teaching and that we would all be encouraged, that we would learn more of You. And as we learn about You, as we see Your face, we would be changed. That we would uh, fall more deeply and desperately in love with You, Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen. Alright, so this is the time of year when we attempt to celebrate Christ. It's easy to get very distracted, as you all know. We all know this so very well, but it is the time where Christians in particular, we want to consider when God came to earth, when Jesus was born and and all that surrounds that. And so Pastor Bill had decided that for the month of December all our messages would uh, be connected to to that idea somehow. So... I could not help but think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm so very excited to share this text. Um, I say that a lot. This text in particular has always been one of my favorites. And uh, I think the best way to describe this text would be the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And I've titled this message, The Humble King. And you'll understand more of that as we, we go through it. But in this text we see the incarnation of Christ. I'm going to be throwing some theological terms at you guys today, and that's one of them. The incarnation of Christ. You may have heard the term God incarnate. Incarnate simply means embodied in flesh or in human form. God in the flesh. That is Jesus. He is God incarnate. So we're going to be talking about the incarnation today. And we see this very clearly in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. First off, we know that as a reference to Jesus when it says that He is the Word. And as you read some of the different scholars and and what that word means in the Greek, logos, it can get so very complicated. But I think the best explanation is Jesus is the perfect communication of God. He is the perfect communication of who God is, what God is like, what God loves, what God hates. And Jesus came to communicate God to us in a way that we could understand. And it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus who has existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit at a certain point in human history, entered into flesh and dwelt among us. 
Now, I will say this, guys. I, I do feel as though I'm treading on sacred ground here today. Uh, these are very beautiful and holy truths that I... Who am I to try to explain these things or understand these things or communicate them to you? I, I, I can't. Uh, but God has revealed just a sliver of this by His grace and through His Spirit. And as much as our human minds can comprehend, I would love to consider these things with you and the implications that it, it has for our life. So what is the significance of the incarnation of Christ? First off, as I've already said, it reveals God to us. There's so much that we would not know about the heart of God if we didn't have Jesus, right? If we didn't see Jesus, how He loved, how He cared for people, have the teachings of Christ, there's so much about God we wouldn't know. He came to provide an example for our lives. As we observe Christ, as He served and as He loved and as He sacrificed, He set an example for us and He said so. Even, uh, for instance, when He washed the disciples' feet, He said, you see here, I've given you an example. You call Me your Lord and Teacher and you say rightfully so, but I've given you an example. If I, your Lord, have done these things, how much more should you? So as we see Christ in action, we realize that this is an example for our lives. He came to provide an effective sacrifice for sin. John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And He came so that He could be a sympathetic high priest. He experienced our weakness. He experienced our limitations. He struggled. He suffered. And I'll talk more about that too as we get into the text. And Hebrews says that we have a high priest who is sympathetic. He is sympathetic. So, there are so many more reasons why this is significant, and I won't get into all of that because it requires so much explanation. Uh, but just to keep it simple, those are a few things that we see that are significant about Christ coming in the flesh. Now, specific to this text, Paul's writings are typically doctrinal and then practical. You'll notice in a lot of his writings, the first few chapters are theological in nature. They're doctrinal. They tell us something about God. And then as he gets to the end of the book, it becomes practical, okay? Now that we know this about God, how then shall we live? How should this shape our lives? And Paul begins to give us practical instruction on how to live that out. But here in this text, you see both happen and you see it happen in reverse. So Paul gives practical instruction. He tells us something that we need to be doing. And then he points to Christ as the example, he gives us doctrine. It helps us understand why we should do these things. And not only that, it gives us a better understanding of how to do it in light of how Christ lived. So we see that happen in this text and we see it happen in reverse. So really the theme in this text is unity. Uh, Paul is calling for unity in the church. We know that with the Corinthians, they were a church that had many issues. And it's very obvious in 1 Corinthians, in fact, they had written a letter to Paul saying we have all these issues and then Paul writes back and addresses them one at a time. Not really the case with the Philippian church. They seemed to be quite healthy, except for this one issue. It appeared that there was uh, conflict, there was disunity, there was perhaps strife in the body, and Paul addresses this. And you kind of see this theme start in verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, "...only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So this is Paul's plea that they would dwell in unity with each other. So with that, we go ahead and pick up in chapter 2. And I'm going to read this text. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Uh, and then we'll go back and start to work our way through. So chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, unity is the idea, and humility is the application. You're only going to accomplish unity through humility. And so Paul, he explains this, and then he gives Christ as the ultimate example of how this is done. His plea is for unity and then he points to what Christ has done and he says, this is our model. This is what it looks like. So verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now you'll notice it says, Therefore, if there is... Now, in the Greek, this is not, uh, it, it sounds here as though he were saying, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. And when we hear the word if, that's typically what it means. But in the Greek, it, it could be better rendered since there is. And I won't go into all, all of why that is, but it's commonly accepted that Paul's not questioning whether these things are a reality in the church. He's saying, since there is, and this word consolation, we don't typically use that, it, it means encouragement. So since there is encouragement, since there is love, since there is commonality in the Spirit, since there is affection, be like-minded. Have the same love. Be of one mind. That's Paul's plea for unity. Paul is asking them. He's saying, I know that these things are a reality in your church. I know that you love each other. I know that you are like-minded. I know that you have fellowship in the Spirit. And this being the case... Dwell together in unity. Be united. Have love one for another. And then Paul is going to go on and he's going to give some practical exhortation here. Verses 3 and 4. 
He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So now Paul's getting practical here. Unity requires that we consider others' needs before our own. Unity requires that we consider others' needs before our own, right? This doesn't come so naturally. Um, And I think I remember when the Lord revealed this to me early on in my Christian walk. I tell this story, it's kind of silly, but I think it makes a good point. So I worked, uh, I was a woodworker and um, new in Christ. And I worked in this wood shop in South Carolina, and it would get so hot in there during the summer. I mean, it got so hot that eventually the thermostat just went blank, or it would say error or something like that. It couldn't even tell you how hot it was in there anymore. And so the maintenance man there was actually up in the attic of the building doing something that day. And I went into the break room to get some water. And we have one of those water fountains like we have out here in the foyer and if you fill your, your bottle up, then the water goes warm after about that point. So I, I came in there and I saw him filling up his water bottle. And my gut reaction was, man, he got the cold water. And then it hit me out of nowhere. It was the Lord. You know, he was like, what makes you think you deserve that water? You know, and uh, then... In fact, I mean, this guy is slaving away up in the, the attic of this, this metal building in the middle of the summertime, yet somehow I should have the cold water. And it was like, wow, something as silly as that, I saw the Lord showed me that I can be quite selfish. My natural instinct is me, right? Self-preservation, take care of myself. And uh, that's what comes natural. And so Paul is reminding them that we need to be deliberate about looking out for the interest of others, considering other people's needs. Now, uh, you might be wondering what this has to do with the incarnation of Christ or a Christmas message, but I'm just giving you guys the context of what's happening here, and you're going to see how this connects. It's not natural for us to consider others in these matters. It's something that requires instruction from the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit, right? But this was very natural for Jesus. And He accomplished this. He lived this way in a very extreme way. In the most extreme way imaginable. So it says in verse 5 of Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Considering others, uh, putting others first, serving others, that came so very naturally for Jesus. He modeled that for us. As I said, He lived this out in the most extreme way imaginable. It says that the mind that is in Christ ought also to be in us. This was our example. This was Christ's mind. This was His heart. And it's to be ours. It's to be ours. And this is something that we see among many other things, but this is something that we see so very well in the incarnation of Christ. This is one of the biggest lessons that I think we can take away from the fact that God took on flesh and dwelt among His people. He came here to serve our greatest need. And we'll talk more about that as we go. Now, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, it says, "...who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God." Now, the Bible makes it very clear. Jesus 
on many occasions made it very clear that he was he claimed equality with God. He is God in the flesh. There are many people today who would say that is that's not true and Jesus never said that, but the reality is Jesus did and his enemies knew it. There were many times where they picked up stones, they wanted to stone him. And he said, "For what good work are you going to stone me?" And they said, "It's not for a good work, it's because you being a man make yourself to be God." They knew who Jesus was claiming to be, right? And the Bible is very clear about that. He existed from eternity past in the form of God. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Bible teaches that God the Father is spirit. He's invisible. No one's ever seen Him at any time except for Christ Himself. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that He is the express image of His person. In the New American Standard, it says that He's the exact representation of His nature. In the ESV, it says He's the exact imprint of His nature. And Jesus said it Himself in John chapter 14, verse 8 and 9. Philip said to Jesus, He said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. It's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and still you don't know Me? That's, that's crazy, right? That's one of those moments where, I mean, in that moment, it's like Jesus is saying, you're talking to Him. Here I am. You want to see the Father? Here He is. Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus has existed in the form of God throughout all of eternity, and it says that He didn't consider that robbery. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now that's the New King James version, and I'm very partial to the New King James. And for the longest time, I thought that when it said he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, that what it was saying is, is um, that Jesus was not robbing God by claiming to be equal. Or uh, Jesus wasn't stealing a title or a status that wasn't rightfully his, you know. But that's not actually what it's saying or what it means. That word translated robbery originally meant something that was seized by robbery. It later came to mean anything that's clutched or embraced or prized. Other translations, ESV, New American Standard, would say that um, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held on to. So what is the point? Jesus, who has dwelt in heavenly glory as the darling of heaven, the beloved of God, in sinless perfection and perfect harmony with God the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity, did not consider that something to be held on to. He didn't cling to that. He didn't grasp at it. He let it go. He let that go and He came to earth as a human. He relinquished that for a period of time and He took on flesh. Verse 7, it says that He made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Again, this word, um, no reputation in the New King James, it's kenosis in the Greek, and it uh, is also translated, He emptied Himself or He made Himself nothing. So he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or, or to cling to that, but he let that go 
and He made Himself nothing. He emptied Himself. Now this is something that scholars have argued over, and rightfully so, for so very long. I mean, who can understand this? God emptied Himself? God relinquished His heavenly rights and glory? What does that mean? But I I like what one pastor said. It's not so much what God emptied Himself of as much as it is what He emptied Himself into. You following me? It's not so much of what He emptied Himself of, but what He emptied Himself into. He took on flesh. He took on flesh. He submitted Himself to human weakness and limitation. God of heaven submitted Himself to human flesh and limitation. Which brings us to another interesting um, theological idea. And it's the hypostatic union of Christ. You ever heard that one before? It's the idea that Jesus is fully God, yet fully man. He's not half God, half man. It's not 50-50. He's fully God, He's fully man. The hypostatic union of Christ. Colossians 2.9 says that for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And why is that important? I'll tell you why. Who could be perfect but God Himself? Right? Jesus had to be fully God if He was going to be a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Right? But on the flip side, He had to be human if He was going to be a sacrifice. There had to be bloodshed. If He was going to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, He had to be human which debunks the idea that uh, a lot of false teachers were pushing uh, in the first century that Jesus was some sort of phantom being. Uh, He wasn't actually flesh. He just appeared that way. Not true. Jesus had to be able to suffer and die for the sins of the world. He had to be flesh. So Jesus came. He emptied Himself of His heavenly glory, took on the limitations of flesh, stepped into time and space, And though He were fully man, He was fully God. And this is a mystery. It's hard for us to understand other than we do know that He was limited in some ways and that He did weep. Jesus was tested. He did experience hunger. We know that He got thirsty. We know that He had anxiety to the point of sweating blood. Jesus understands. He has walked in our shoes. He has been in our skin, as it were, and walked among us. And it says that He came in the form of a servant. He didn't go from being a heavenly king to an earthly king. You understand that, right? Jesus didn't go from being a heavenly king to an earthly king. He came in the form of a slave. He lived only to do the will of the Father. That, that was His life. He made that very clear. And He did not come to be served, but He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus came to this earth and He took on flesh, He lived as a servant, as a slave. His whole priority in life was to serve God and serve us. To serve those who were around Him and those who would come to faith in His name throughout all of history from that point forward. That was why Jesus came and He took the form of a servant. And it says that He came in the likeness of men. Another phrase, 
the condescension of Christ. Condescension of Christ. Um, this is not condescension in the way that we typically understand it, right? When someone's being condescending towards us, it's an insult. Uh, they're ve- being very rude. Maybe they're treating us with disdain. But to say the condescension of Christ, He who dwelt in heavenly glory condescended. He came down to the level of human. Second Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sakes He became poor, that through His poverty you might become rich. So He was rich, we were poor. He became poor so that we could be rich, spiritually speaking, so that we could have life. He gave His life away so that we could have life. He served us to the death. He considered our needs greater than His own. He who dwelt in heavenly glory and had need of nothing gave everything away so that we could have our greatest need met. So that we could be reconciled to God. So that we could be set free from the bondage of sin. So that we could have heaven here on earth through a relationship with Christ, but have eternal life with God the Father in heavenly glory. Jesus considered that more important. Jesus was willing to lay everything aside and put on flesh for that, for that purpose, for us. I was debating on whether I was even going to use this illustration, and I think I will. I, um, I heard a pastor one time say, and it was at a men's conference, so he was being a, a bit more, more bold, you know, we're men and we're grunting and, and saying gross things and acting tough and... He asked the question, he said, would you become a maggot to save maggots? Right? And everyone kind of chuckled and you know, he really started going into how gross that was and he was really painting this disgusting picture. But that really stuck with me. And let me say this, what I, I am not saying that we are maggots and I'm not saying that God sees us as maggots. That's not what I'm saying. But when I think about becoming a maggot, right? or becoming a maggot to save maggots, that really grosses me out. I mean, that makes me feel very uncomfortable. I mean, would you agree? And, and the thing is, when we think about God becoming man, we don't even flinch. We don't even think about where He came from and what He became. It doesn't really mean much to us. And I think when you start to get that feeling in your stomach, when you think about that, now you're starting to understand just a little bit. The emotion, I mean... This is a big deal what, what Jesus did. I mean, it's so much bigger than our minds and hearts could ever fully grasp. It should change everything about us. It should change everything about the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves. So much of our lives should be filtered through this idea that Jesus... I mean, this is the most radical example I can think of of someone leaving their comfort zone. You know what I mean? I mean, you want to talk about leaving your comfort zone. That's it. And that's sacrifice. And that's considering other people's needs. And that's serving other people. And that's what Jesus did through the Incarnation. And that is something that we try to be very intentional to consider, especially this time of year. That would be one of the greatest implications, I think, that this reality has for our life. In verse 8, Philippians. 
And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus went as low as you can possibly go. As I said, He didn't trade being a heavenly king for an earthly king. He became a slave and then He humbled Himself to the death of the cross. This is shame and scorn beyond measure. He was betrayed by those closest to Him. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was put on trial by mere men. He was punched. He was spit on. He had His beard ripped out. He was whipped. He had the crown of thorns forced onto His head. He had to carry the cross. Think about this. He had the flesh ripped off His back when He was flogged like that. And now He's got to carry this cross. And as He's nailed to this thing, you know, one of the things about crucifixion, you can't breathe. So when they're hanging like that, they have to push up on their feet so they, they can get up above shoulder level and take a, a breath of air and then drop back down. And His back was gone. And He's rubbing up and down this cross like that. He was stripped naked, nailed to that cross, mocked by the people, and ultimately he was, he was carrying our sins upon Himself when He was hanging on that cross. He did all of that for us. He did all of that for His enemies. God so demonstrated His love in that He died for us even while we were His enemies. So I would say this, John chapter 13, verse 1. This is the night before Jesus was to be crucified. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Jesus' hour came. Throughout the Gospels, over and over, we hear Him say, My hour has not yet come. And you wonder, what does that mean? Well, now we know what that means. The very reason that Jesus came was to die. That was His hour. And His hour had come. But it says that having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the very end. He didn't stop short. He went all the way. He went all the way to the cross. And Hebrews said that He did it for the joy that was set before Him. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. And what was the joy that was set before Him? It was us. It was His church. He died for us so that we could be forgiven. That's the Gospel message. That's the good news. There's bad news. The bad news is we've all sinned and we're separated from a holy and just God and we have to give an account for our sins. The good news is God is merciful. And He sent His Son, Jesus, who took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died a brutal death He did not deserve so that if we put our faith in Him and repent of our sins, we would be born again, born of the Spirit, forgiven of our sins, set free from the bondage of sin, we would have eternal life. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No threat of hell. Amen? That's the Gospel. That's the good news. That's why Jesus came. And He didn't stop short. He went all the way to the end. Alright, let's close with this. Verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore, God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's bring this back a little bit to a Christmas message. Jesus is not in the manger. Jesus is not on the cross, as some would seemingly still act. And He certainly is not in the tomb. Jesus is risen, right? Jesus has been exalted. Jesus has been given the name that is above every single name. And it's our joy to confess that name here and now, is it not? It's our greatest delight to confess His name and bow the knee here and now in this place. There's going to come a time where everyone will confess that name. Everyone's going to bow the knee. But ours is the joy and the privilege and delight to do it right now. And our lives should be marked by this, should it not? Our lives should be marked by the incarnation that God Himself took on flesh. Our lives should be marked by the exaltation. He's King. He is the Lord. He reigns high and above. And He's God. He's God. So our lives should be marked by the incarnation and the exaltation of Christ. And we celebrate that. Look guys, there are... I really thought through this. There were a number of things I, I, I was going to say, you know, Jesus did all this. Now the least that we can do is fill in the blank. You know, I had a list of those. But I think that's an insult to Christ. I'm not even going to put it on that level. Suffice it to say, Christ did that. That changes everything. Everything. Every part of your life should be shaped by that. You fill in that blank. The Holy Spirit will tell you what that is. You know. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on flesh. Alright, we're going to close with a song. I'm going to pray for us. If you need prayer, I would encourage you, please come up and, uh, and receive prayer. We have people who, who want to serve you in that way. Father, we love You. We praise You. I do ask that this time of year help us be intentional about celebrating our Lord. Celebrating His birth. Um, help us to be intentional about re- remembering why He came and uh, what that means for us and how our lives are to be uh, shaped by that. Help us to live in that reality. Let it not be all about presence, let it be about His presence in our lives and us bringing Him glory, bringing You glory. So we love You, Father. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.